Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, how are you? Welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing all right. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Justin Torres, author of a new novel called Blackouts. One of the things about doing kind of the work and the writing that I was doing is that like, I don't know, like I wanted to, I wanted to document these lives. Like I wanted to like recuperate or, you know, like, like bring, bring out of the shadows into the light. Like, and I also was like, but that's weird. Right, like, because the history is about the shadows. Like, you, like, like, there's a certain sense in which you have to keep things kind of disappeared, and and like, you have to emphasize the nature in which things were. The erasure is is a huge part of the story of queer history, right? And so you can't do too much recuperation <laughs> because it turns into fantasy, right? Like, and so so blackouts is, is about like engaging with this process of looking backwards, trying to know about the past, trying to find out more, this impulse to rescue or something, and then the frustration of that. Okay, that was Justin Torres. His new novel is called Blackouts, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Blackouts is a finalist for the National Book Award. It is a novel about narrative and history, about the fictions that live in the stories that we tell ourselves about our past, certain parts of our past. It's also about the stories that lay buried and forgotten, preventing us from ever really knowing the full truth. This is a book about queer history. It is formally inventive, deeply intelligent, subversive, and sensual. I had a great time talking with Justin Torres. Our conversation is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at Substack. The newsletter is pretty straightforward, pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of this program. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go over to Substack 
and subscribe to my newsletter. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community if you love this show and you want to help it continue into the future. Just go over to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There is merchandise. You can get t-shirts, tote bags, book club subscriptions, or you know, probably one of each. You know what I mean. It's a, it's a way to support the show. It's a way to get other people gear. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, a new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lin. In The Night Parade, Jamie Nakamura Lin braids her experience of mental illness, the death of her father, the grieving process, and other haunted topics driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lin, available now from Mariner Books. Okay, so my guest once again is Justin Torres. His new novel is called Blackouts. It is available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Justin Torres is also the author of the debut novel We the Animals, which won the VCU Cabell First Novel Award. It was translated into 15 languages and was adapted into a feature film. Over the course of his career, Justin Torres has been named a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford, a Fellow at Radcliffe at Harvard, and a Coleman Center Fellow at the New York Public Library. His short fiction and essays have appeared in a variety of publications, including The New Yorker, Harper's, Granta, The Washington Post, and Best American Essays. He teaches at UCLA here in Los Angeles, and I'm very pleased to have him here on this program today to talk with me about his latest book. So let's get to it. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Justin Torres, and his new novel, One More Time, is called Blackouts. I mean, I don't know. I guess in retrospect, it might sound like false modesty, but honestly, I really did not think people respond to that book or read that read that book widely i had and worked, this is this is this is we the animals your, this is your we debut. The animals. yeah yeah i mean i prior to we the animals um i had worked in bookstores i worked in a couple bookstores and i'd seen the life of books like books that i thought were good and the way you know just how difficult it is to get any attention at all the idea that i would get attention for my very small very short very slim book um, it just, I, I did not expect it. Um, so it was really, uh, it was really head spinning, I would say. Um, I, I just, yeah, I, I was delighted. I was delighted. Um, but I also felt like I, I had to kind of catch up to my own life and catch up to the expectations that people had. Because it was like suddenly... I was an author with a capital A. And- right, right. Well, I mean, and do you have, now that you have the benefit of hindsight, any insight into why that book connected with people so strongly? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've been talking about this book for like twelve years, like so. <laughs> so, like, it, it it's kind of never stopped, like, which is lovely. You know, it gets taught a lot, um, and and I think that what I what people like consistently say about that is 
that it reminds them of their own childhoods. And it's, and it will be wild, right? Cause it'll be like, somebody who's like, they're like, you know, I, I grew up in like Darien, Connecticut, you know, with, with, with significant resources, but still like, <laughs> like this is, this is me and like my two sisters. And I'm like, really? But, but, it, but I think that I, I tried to kind of make myth out of family. I didn't try to, to do a, like a kind of realism that is, you know, like there's, there's something kind of suspended about the book. It, there's something in which like Ma and Pops and the boys are like, you know, there's something I I tried to to make them kind of essential in a way that maybe kind of feels more universal, even though it's a very specific book about a very specific family from a very specific background. There's something that, I don't know. I I think that people just read their childhoods into it quite, quite a lot. That's been the response I get. Yeah. And it also, as you alluded to a second ago, made you suddenly a capital A author and put you into a position of, I think, perceived authority Mm. when it comes to certain issues. Yeah. Right. And that was, I feel like something that you were not entirely prepared for. No. And it's not something that I invited either. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, you know, like I, like suddenly everybody's asking me about Latinx literature and queer literature and, you know, like, like literature about people, like working class people and working class families. And I was literature I, I read and loved as a, you know, as a, as a reader, as, you know, but not as an expert or an authority, right? Like not as, not, not as a scholar. It was, and so, so like there's, there's some, there's, there's something strange I, I find, I found about, suddenly people just really trusting what I had to pronounce on the state of, of Latinx literature, the state of queer literature. It's like, like, surely, like, you are the authority here. And, you know, I have lots of ideas and opinions, but I didn't, I, I don't think, I don't know, maybe some people do, but I, I don't think many, many authors set out to be an authority on 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 certain issues. I think they set out to write the best book possible. I was going to say, it's it's hard enough to just write a novel (laughs) to to also have to carry this mantle of being like an expert on all these very complex topics is that's a, that's a big ask. Yeah. It's strange. It's, it's strange. It, It was, I mean, at the same time, it felt like an opportunity and something that a kind of challenge that I wanted to rise to. And so I would, I, you know, I, I felt like I hadn't read enough. I felt like I wasn't kind of commensurate to what was being asked of me. And so I was like, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to take my time. I don't, you know, like there's a, there's a, there were like a lot of, what do I want to say? There were a lot of people willing to listen to whatever came out of my mouth. And I was like, maybe I should, maybe I should know some more before I talk. And so it's, you know, one of the reasons there's this enormous gap between We the Animals and Blackouts is I wanted to I wanted to read. I wanted to spend a lot of time reading and researching and filling in the gaps and revisiting things I had read before but I hadn't really understood and and just grow a little bit. I, I felt I felt like that was it that I was young and that was a young book and I'm I'm proud of it. But I wanted to do something really, really different. Um for the next time out. So it, it sounds like it affected you creatively. 
Like, mm-hmm. did it cause you to feel like a sense of block? Like, I don't know what to say, or I feel like I don't want, like you say, I don't want to say anything until I've got my bearings a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I retreated from the world uh, for sure. There were, there, I, I was extended a lot of invitations and at first I was doing everything I could to, to possibly promote the book. And then at a certain point I thought for my own, yeah, creativity for my own kind of artistic life, I need to pull back and also, you know, to not feel, I don't know, fraudulent or to not feel like I was, you know, in it. I don't, what do I want to say? I am naturally a hermit. I am like, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm naturally somebody who stays home and thinks a lot and reads a lot and, and like bashes my head against the keyboard. And, and that's, that's like, that's, that's who I am when I'm out on, on a stage or in front of an audience, like I ham it up and I, you know, you know, like, I don't want, I don't want to bore people. So <laughs> right. I put on a show, but I, and, and in that process, I think I kind of offered, especially with we, the animals, I offered quite a lot of myself up. Um, and I just had to pull back a little bit. I don't know that I felt blocked, but I did feel like not in a hurry to do it again. <laughs> like like the, the public part of it, I was, I was just, I was in no rush to like be out in the world with a book again. And so, I don't know that, I think it was for the best. I think it was for the best. Well, I mean, so far so good with blackouts. <laughs> and I I want for people listening to try to give an overview of this book. Not an easy book to <laughs> encapsulate in a couple of sentences, right? I haven't figured out how to do it myself. Okay. I so so I will... See what you have to say. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, as a matter of courtesy, I will take the first stab at this <laughs> and I will probably botch it. And then you can fill in whatever gaps there are. But it is a novel that blends fact and fiction. Mm-hmm. It involves erasure poetry, mm-hmm. queer history. There are illustrations throughout the book, which not only illuminate the text, but also have something to do with characters, actual people mentioned in the text. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of blackouts is a real book called sex variants a study in homosexual patterns which is a doctor's collection of candid case studies published in i believe the early 1940s so there's a lot going on like there's a (laughs) lot going on and what i want to talk about with regard to this actual book called sex variants which is not like a bestseller <laughs> in <laughs> 1940s, I'm assuming, right? I don't think it was. No, uh, no, no, it was. I don't a think this was, was on the medical the coffee tables of uh, my grandparents or whatever. <laughs> but you actually stumbled into this book, mm-hmm. and it's it's an interesting story to tell because it is the creative origin story of blackouts. Mm-hmm. You were working at what Modern Times Bookstore in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Take us there into your discovery of sex variants. Yeah, so this was right before We the Animals came out, or no, maybe like a year before We the Animals came out. But I'd sold I'd sold the book, but I hadn't gotten any money yet. And I was about to start this this program at 
Stanford is a Stegner Fellowship. And it was this moment of like, re- like really being in between the life I'd always had, which was just like being broke every day of my life. And suddenly like things were changing for me dramatically. But I was, I was working at this bookstore and somebody brought in a box of books and um, it was clear that, it seemed clear to me, I don't know, but it seemed clear to me that the person had died, that this was, you know, that these donations were coming from some kind of estate of somebody queer who had an extensive library. And a lot of the titles were familiar to me, these kind of pre-Stonewall text, um, like, like like The Well of Loneliness or Shanae or Gide or like, you know, um, f- just from, from my own reading. And then there was this book's experience and it was, yeah, this medical study with these photographs of these participants who, you know, would come in, allow themselves to be measured, their genitals are measured, their faces are kind of blurred out and anonymized in these photographs, they're photographed naked, they are given pseudonyms, there's 40 men and 40 women, and they just testify. I mean, they just come in and they give these testimonies about their lives. They're asked a lot of questions about their sex lives, so a lot of it is about their sex lives, but it's also about their kind of family backgrounds. It was just a fascinating text because there were kind of like two discourses or two impulses in 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 the text or like one was this committee and their their desire was to find out the cause of this disease of homosexuality right this like like is it a mental illness is it a physical disease right like that's one impulse and then the other impulse was clearly to document these lives in some way, right? Like there's there's a competing impulse that was almost liberatory. Yeah. Okay. And the committee that you just referred to is called the Committee for the Study of Sex Variants. Yeah. And again, just to place people in time because this is so important and I think it is so central to the project of blackouts is to like contextualize history, to resuscitate lives that were previously erased in history. Mm-hmm. And in 1941, homosexuality was pathologized. It was considered an illness. This did not change until what, 1974? Yeah, the 70s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like in an official way by the broader medical community. I forget what the name of the text is. What do they call it? The DSM. The Diagnostic yeah, the DSM. Manual. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. right. So the committee is studying all of these people to try to discern what the cause of this quote unquote illness is. And you talked about the competing interests that the committee had. What do you think about the people who volunteered themselves for this study to participate? There was, I think, some interest for them to communicate the truth of their experiences and and they wanted this committee to understand the they didn't want them to understand the pathology of it. They wanted them to see that it was not a pathology, right? I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, certainly some of them. Yeah. And that, so, so the project begins with this woman, Jan Gay and blackouts is a lot about Jan Gay. It's a lot, it's a lot about kind of telling her story. And she was a real person. She's a real person who, who really existed. And she was a kind of, you know, lesbian activist and lesbian researcher. And she had started her own project that the committee's work is based on. And so they basically took all of her research and 
they never gave it back to her. And they were like, we want to do what you're doing, which is documenting lesbian lives. Her, her desire was to do that so that people would see, right? The more information that was publicly available, social attitudes would change over time, right? This, this was her thinking, right? And they took her research and they also took her contacts and they involved her. She was, she was involved in the study and she was recruiting people and she would come in and she would take their testimonies, but they needed her kind of context to this underground queer world, right? Like they, when she approached them with this research, because she could never get it published herself. She needed a, like a male medical doctor, you know, like who's going to be make this kind of very controversial work like official, right? Like officially palatable, right? Um, to, to publishing. So when she approached him with this work, they were, I mean, one of the things that was exciting was like, oh, wow, you you can get these people to come and talk to us, right? <laughs> like, like we can't go into the bars <laughs> and be like, come t- tell us everything about your lives, right? Like you can, like you, you know what I mean? And, and, and she did. And a lot of the people she recruited were unashamed, right? They were they saw nothing wrong with the way they lived their lives. They were, some of them were activists. Some of them really wanted to, to, to demonstrate that homosexuality was, that there was nothing wrong with it, right? That, that people should change their prejudices. Others of them were conflicted. I mean, it was, this is, we're talking about the thirties, right? The study is published in 1940, but this is, all this is happening in the thirties. This, this is a years long study. And, you know, a lot of them, had internalized the shame and stigma. Uh, quite a few of them wanted to be cured. Some of them showed up and they were like, I'll do anything, doc, right? Like, <laughs> like that was their motivation for showing up. It's like, help me. But that wasn't the majority of them. And in every case, the person who took down the testimonies, it was clear that they did a lot of work to capture the kind of authentic voice this place that that person was speaking from, right? So there's a wide range of classes. There's a range of races. There's there's like there's real variety in the kinds of people who come forward. Some of them are hustlers and identify as straight, even though they're like constantly having sex with men. Other of them, right, are like identify as sissy queens or like you know butch lesbians or whatever. And, but they're all like whatever their attitude was towards their own sexuality and towards the world, somebody really tried to get down the way that they talk, like their vernacular, their speech patterns. And that care is what fascinated me. Like, I was like, that's how I discovered Jan Gay, because I was like, something's going on here. Somebody had a different interest in this study. And in the final result, she is almost totally erased. There's one small mention of her, even though the entire thing was began with her, was her idea in the final actually published text, Sex Variants, there's almost no mention of her. And she hated she hated the final study. She hated it. Okay. So how did you, you, you pick up this book when you're working at Modern Times Bookstore in San Francisco. You start reading these case studies, which are, like you say, delivered in the vernacular of these individual humans and have a, a real authenticity to them. How did you learn about Jan Gay? Was it just that brief mention and then you started to explore more on a hunch or... Like, can you just try to kind of contextualize it? Sure, yeah, yeah. There are two books, like, you know, I just started doing research on the study itself, and there are two books. One of them is called Departing from Deviance, 
uh, by this guy Minton, and this the other book was called An American Obsession by this woman Jennifer Thierry, and both of those books dive a little bit into the stories of Jan Gay. They also tell the story of Thomas Painter, who's another figure in the book. He's not mentioned as much, but he was another person who was an amateur sexologist himself and a participant in the study. Um, but both of these books kind of get into that a little bit. And that's that's where I was like, oh, there's this story about this woman, Jan Gay. And then I started doing all the research I could about Jan Gay. I was like, I want to I want to tell her story because it's, because they tell it a little bit and they're like, it was her idea, her work was stolen, but that's kind of, that's kind of it. And then, and then I realized I couldn't find much more. Like there's, like there's, even though she published tons of children's books, she was a nudist. She published a book on nudity. She opened it. She founded a nudist colony in upstate New York. Like she was an amazing, <laughs> bold woman who had changed her name to Jan Gave. Like that was not her original name. She was, she she was Helen Reitman, correct? Wasn't it? Helen Reitman, yeah, yeah, exactly. And her father was a very famous anarchist, the lover of um, Emma Goldman. She was like such an amazing figure. Later in life, Andy Warhol moves in with her, like randomly before he's Andy Warhol. He's still Andy Warhol. Andy Warhola or Andrew Warhola, you know, and like she just touches history on kind of both ends of of these kind of amazing moments, this early like labor history and and this kind of mid century artistic moment, and she's she's incredible in every way, and yet there's just not a lot about her that I that I could find like in the archives or whatever, and so what happens in my book is that. Juan, who's an old man on his deathbed dying and having a conversation with the narrator, who's a young man in his 20s, the two of them, they just talk the whole book and and they imagine a life for Jan, right? They, they just, they tell her life as if it's a film, as if it's the plot of a film, and they pour in their own imaginings. And this is where the kind of what is fact and what is fiction starts to get really muddled and... A lot more is fact. I think the first time you read the book, you know, it's 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 quite unclear. And then as you get to kind of the end notes and you're like, wow, a lot more of this is seems to be factual in some way than I would have anticipated. So when it comes to, I mean, we're talking about one particular narrative in queer history and one that I think is in many ways, like really, it's really important, this sex variance study and this book that emerged from it, however flawed it may be. But I'm curious to know about your relationship to queer history and your interest in it, mm-hmm. in particular with regard to the issue of erasure, because so much of queer history is undocumented. Mm-hmm. So much of it unfolded in the shadows, necessarily. You know, people were mm-hmm. in hiding. It wasn't socially acceptable. It was even dangerous to be out. And so there's not a ton prior to what the mid 20th century i mean you know what i'm saying i'm curious to know a little bit more about your interest in this and how much you knew before you picked up this copy of sex variants yeah i mean i knew i knew kind of what what i had been allowed to know i knew what was a what, what had slipped through the cracks right like like i like you know obviously growing up I knew absolutely nothing. You know, like nobody, the only time anybody ever talked about queerness was in the context of AIDS. And it was 
you know, it was, I grew up in a very, you know, in, in a place where nobody ever said anything positive about homosexuality. It just, it just didn't happen ever, <laughs> ever, you know, for, until, you know, I, I left for New York city, you know, when I was 18, like it's just, and so I knew nothing about queer history. I, I had a real desire to learn everything I could. And I, I did that mostly through reading and literature and the literature that again had been published so much, so much writing hadn't been published or had been lost or whatever. I think that when, at the moment that sex variance came into my life, you know, I, I had a really good sense of like queer history starting from the kind of seventies, right. Starting like, like post Stonewall queer history, right. Like that's, I, I feel I felt like I'd studied that quite a bit and had a good sense of it, but pre-Stonewall, I didn't. It was just I didn't, you know. It it was a lot. It it seemed like a very shadowy time. Partly, partly this idea is a little bit untrue, right? Like there is this, you know, like the pansy craze of the twenties and thirties in New York. Like there are all these, you know, there's there's Berlin, right, and kind of Weimar Berlin. Like there are lots of moments where there's like a very open kind of exuberant queer scene that emerges in various places in various contexts but also that the shadow underground nature of it is absolutely true as well and it's a it's a difficult history to tell because it was never meant to be captured right um, partly because you know the queer people themselves are like don't want to be outed and don't want to be don't want to like lose everything by being outed and partly because history with a capital H has no interest in or desire in, in, in capturing these lives. And so um, one of the things about doing kind of the work and the writing that I was doing is that like, I don't know, like I wanted to, I wanted to document these lives. Like I wanted to like recuperate or, you know, like, bring bring out of the shadows into the light like and I also was like but that's weird right like because the history is about the shadows like, you, like like there's a certain sense in which you have to keep things kind of disappeared and and like you have to emphasize the nature in which things were were shadowy right like we're like 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 the, the erasure is is a huge part of the story of queer history, right? And so you can't do too much recuperation <laughs> because it turns into fantasy, right? Like, and so so Blackouts is, is about like engaging with this process of looking backward, trying to know about the past, trying to find out more, this impulse to rescue or something. And then the frustration of that, the frustration of, of that very endeavor, right? And like constantly, encountering erasure again and again and again and it's like that was that was interesting to me to capture right which, which is like there's something i don't know artistic about frustration there's something I don't know, it's like edge play there's something kind of it's kind of kinky right like as a reader you're just like you're like surely the plot is going to start soon surely all these these holes are going to be filled in like surely and it's actually no it just keeps doing something slightly different or slightly unexpected. Yeah. Well, so creatively, you know, you talked about Jan Gay and her partner, uh, is it Zenya? Zenya? Yeah, I guess it's probably Zenya. I, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's the ZH. I'm I'm, let's just say Zenya. Zenya and Jan were 
more of the starting points after reading Sex Variants. And then from there, you built out these characters. You mentioned Juan Gay, this uh, older gay man who is on his deathbed in this place called the Palace, which is not entirely defined, like in terms of, I know it's somewhere in the desert, but I don't know exactly where I'm thinking, like somewhere near Palm Springs. Like this is where my mind is because I live in Southern California. And then you have the narrator who is a young hustler in his like what 20s he's 27 i believe he's called nene that's what juan calls him so you have Mm -hmm. juan on his deathbed in the palace and you have nene who is staying with him in his room and sort of tending to him and this book I, I, i wrote this down i don't know where i plucked it from so forgive me but it is characterized as, quote, one epic conversation between a pivotal 20th century queer sexology text and two unreliable queer Puerto Rican narrators. <laughs> like, there you have it in a nutshell. But uh, I just want to ask you creatively about bridging the divide between the actual history that you were fascinated by in sex variants, the actual lives, Jan Gay and Jenya Gay in particular, that you were fascinated by, and trying to get to what we ultimately arrive at in blackouts. How to, like you were saying, how to tell that story. And you use the relationship between Juan Gay and Nene and their conversation, their extended dialogue over the course of the novel, their storytelling they are telling each other stories playfully often throughout the book but in a way that resuscitates and delivers a kind of corrective to the erasure that mm. we've been talking about so how did you get to Juan and Nene from Jan Gay and Sex Variants yeah 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 it's a great question uh and I love that I love that quote that that you this is, I want a t-shirt that says like unreliable Puerto Rican narrative. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> well, this is my MO. My MO is to prepare for these conversations, to write a ton of shit down and attribute none of it. I don't I'm just, it, it, I'm always in a hurry. <laughs> it's great. It's a good quote. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that I arrived at, at, at Juan and the narrator. I mean, it's, it, it's it's like it's difficult to reconstruct i mean this book took me so many years so but it so like a little bit of this is is a simplification of of just pure chaos and right <laughs> like, like desperation and, and like duct tape you know but but i think that one thing that i had going was this research into jen gay and jen gay and and their lives and i was like deeply involved in the sex variant study and fascinated with that. Another thing that I had going was this story of a young sex worker, like this, this young man who's like, who's like hustling to get by. And that was something that I had been working on after We the Animals. It was kind of similar to We the Animals in a lot of ways. It was like, you know, like, like first person um, kind of like, vignette or like short stories linked together and i lost this manuscript this was like right after with the animals and i lost a manuscript and the only bits that i had i like left this laptop in the back of, of the train 
like in the back seat in front of me in a, in a train and kind of watched it go away into the dark tunnel. Oh no. And I hadn't saved it anywhere except on that laptop. So the only bits I had, I'd either, or like things I'd either emailed myself or that had been published already somewhere. Cause it was like, I'd published a couple of stories from that manuscript and I I wanted to use this material, but it was like, I didn't, I didn't know how it all fit with all of this research that I was doing into sex marriage and John Gay. And I also like, I had changed as a writer, right? Like as time went on, I just kept changing the kind of writer that I was. And there was something like, this kind of moody self-seriousness that I tend toward in my in my writing that kind of permeated those that that, that manuscript that got lost and and those little bits the vestigial bits that remained and I I started to feel like I was I would I had this kind of slightly teasing attitude towards my own early work <laughs> and and I think that it reflected something that kind of weird elders that I had in my own life had taught me, right? Which is like the value of being able to laugh at yourself, right? Like the, the, the essential, like that is, it is essential to be able to laugh at yourself, right? Like that, that is the, the true crime is, is somebody who's, who doesn't possess that capability. And so, and I started to think about this narrative's relationship with, with older men, right? Because one thread of that, of that book is him having all these, you know, encounters with with men who are paying him for sex, and there's something charged and and kind of polluted by capitalism, and you know, like some of those encounters are are great, and others are not so great, and blah blah blah. But there's other relationships having with older men that are also erotically charged that are outside of capital, right? That are just kind of like mentorship, like sexy mentorship, right? <laughs> like, and I and I started to get more and more interested in like that dynamic. You know, like that, like there's something, I don't know. I've been really fortunate in my own life to have like, you know, men and women, like queer elders of, of, of lots of different genders. But, but particularly I wanted to write the dynamic of like, of like these, these men that I've known who took an interest in me and, and were like, hey, maybe uh, other people have thought about the things you're thinking about. Maybe you should read this maybe you should read that maybe you should get out of inside yourself a little bit more and connect to history and like there's so much you don't know and and like maybe you should be a little less sad boy and you know like and like learn the value of humor and and also just like people who wanted who had patience with me right who wanted to tease me out of myself who wanted to tease me out of my own depression or whatever and I was so thankful and for those relationships and and so to write about one of them, it seemed like it seemed like a way to pull this all together, right? To 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 get Juan into the story. And and like here's Juan and he's so generous. He's so literary. He's read everything. And he's also funny. I was gonna say, and, everybody everybody needs a Juan, you know, just like a mentor <laughs> who's like patient and funny and like calm in the face of death. I mean, he's kind of a magical <laughs> character, right? He's he's definitely a magical character. And yeah, and I think you're right. Everybody everybody needs one. And perhaps especially queer people need it more than others, right? Because the you're not gonna have a grandpa, right? You're not gonna like 
I mean, some people will. Now the world, the whole world is changing. So there are lots of queer gram- grandpas like arriving on the scene. But until very recently, if you were queer, you know, chances are you were raised in a very heterosexual family. And so you're any kind of intergenerational relationship or mentorship you might have was probably within that heterosexual family dynamic. And if you're queer, you need to search that out actively. Right. right. I mean, this is a question that I have. Like, first of all, you grew up in an environment where homosexuality was not spoken kindly about or spoken about at all. Yeah. Uh, I want to say when you, when your parents discovered that you were gay through your diaries, you were committed to a mental institution. Do I have that right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it, like none of, none of, none of it is, is like kind of cut and dry as like easy media narratives about, you know, like I wasn't sent to conversion therapy or anything like that, but yeah, yeah. I've written about this before. Yeah. I was, I was institutionalized when I was a teenager and it, and it was, it had everything to do with my sexuality and it had everything to do with the discovery of, of very personal writings that I, I've been writing. So just to kind of uh, connect this to blackouts, Juan Gay and Nene, the narrator of your book, met in a mental institution years prior to this story unfolding. And as I was kind of prepping and I read the book and then was reading about your past, it did make me wonder about this issue of mentorship. Because in a culture, especially as you just said, a culture that until just very recently was pretty closed off in terms of its acceptance and recognition of homosexuality and sex variants, you know, different uh, biological possibilities, (laughs) you know, it would be uniquely difficult for in particular a young queer person to have a sense of themselves and to see themselves reflected in the world openly mm. in, in ways mm. that I, as a straight guy, take for granted. You see mm. examples of heterosexual coupledom reflected all over the place in the culture. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's much easier and it's just sort of, you know, out there and, and uh, normalized or, you know what I'm saying? And so mm-hmm. is it common is my question in your experience, not just for you, but mm. for gay people in general to have these kinds of mentorships, like relationships with elder queer people who kind of coach them. I'm just imagining myself, if I were in that situation, I would be looking to someone older to kind of like explain things to me. Is that normal or is that something that you kind of lucked into? Yeah. I mean, I think it is normal. I mean, one of the things, normal is like a weird word to use in this context, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that one of the things that I was thinking about very explicitly was like was like the idea of Socratic dialogue, right? And so, you know, this this I, you know, if you go back to Plato, right, and you and you read the Symposium, or right, he, he talks about, you know, these erotic relations between young men and older men and for Plato the ideal is that like these aren't consummated right to to consummate them would be to like devalue this exchange but that there's some interest that the older generation like like a a man like Socrates right like takes in youth and beauty and an instruction of that youth and beauty right and like imparting like wisdom to 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 
to that beautiful young youth. And then the youth is attracted to wisdom, right? And it's like this mutual attraction or whatever. And like, I was thinking about that very explicitly. So like, that's a tradition that goes back to antiquity, right? (laughs) Um, And I think that something of that continues on. I think that in more contemporary times, you know, like like moving, <laughs> moving out of ancient Greece, which is its own society with its own kind of norms and values. Um, in more contemporary times, I think that you're really lucky if, if as a young person, you have somebody like that in your life and that you can recognize their value as well, right? Like, like part, part of the trick, I think, is it's like an interest, a real interest in in the generation, you know, and generations above you. And I think that it doesn't always happen, but if it, it should, it should happen all the time, right? And like, as I get older, like, I feel like it's my duty to be like, you know, hello youth, like, <laughs> read this book, read this book, read this. <laughs> I, I think that like, again, because, because there are, you know, because you don't, it's very easy to be in a bar with people who are five years within your age range, right? Like it's very easy, like to, to just surround yourself with people that are, you know, like your social group gets, you know, and it can be a kind of narrow band. Um, And I think, I don't know, I wanted to write very specifically about, about intergenerational dialogue, intergenerational dialogue, because it's always fascinated me. And one of the reasons it's, it's also fascinated me is because, you know, I was born in 1980. And so, you know, one of the reasons that nobody ever said anything positive about homosexuality when I was growing up is because everybody was terrified about of AIDS and everybody blamed it very, very much on gay men. And the hatred, I mean, the real, real, real animosity, like towards gay men, you know, during the AIDS crisis, like that was, that was my experience growing up, right? Like that's the only time anybody ever talked about gay sex was to talk about filth and disease and shame and, you know, and so it was, you know, that was my experience. And, and then as I became a teenager and, and started, you know, like moving to my own sexuality, it was the exact moment that the kind of miracle drugs arrived and, and things started shifting and, and within queer culture, um, and it became less, like the, the terror lessened, you know, the, the, a little bit. And um, and people started, you know, there, there wasn't people weren't burying, burying people every every week, every month anymore, right? Like it was, people were living longer and, and they didn't really, the, the generation just above me didn't really want to talk about it, you know? It was like, it was like the thing that had defined everything about, you know, like my experience of, of, of queerness. And yet I understood as I was a young adult that like people had lived through something incredibly traumatic for a very long time and they were ready to move on and talk about other things, right? It was just like, it was too raw, it was too fresh. And so I had this fascination with the generation just above me <laughs> and the silence around that. Um, and then of course, I mean, you talk about erasure, like, so many people wiped out so much art like there's just all of these books that didn't get written all of this art that didn't get produced in films and you know like the culture would be so different right um 
and it was the exact culture that I was, you know, longing for. And so, um, yeah, all of that went into my thinking when I was when I was coming up with this this dynamic between Juan and and the young narrator. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I uh, forgive me if I'm mistaken here, but is Juan's illness ever specified? No, it's a, yeah, no, no, it, it's not. I mean, one's just one's just old. I mean, one is one is one is one is very old. One is a generation above the generation that was kind of decimated by by AIDS. Right? He's he's old. <laughs> but you know, I, I gotta I gotta admit this. When I was reading it, and I'm probably just projecting my own experience. I'm five years older than you are, but I'm projecting my own experience of history onto this. But I think I was at least thinking in a passing way of AIDS. Sure. Sure. You know, yeah. but I guess like it would be out of time. I'm trying to, pl- I don't know how, if, if this is, if this narrative is placed in contemporary time in a specific way either. Is it? Yeah. Is there a year? Like, do we know when it's, when it's happening? Yeah. I mean, I think it's very, it's very, very deliberately muted. You know, I think there might be the tiniest reference that would allow you to be like, oh, this is 2007 or whatever. But but it's very muted and it's muted on purpose. Like, like you were talking about the palace and the sending of the palace and, and you kind of don't know where it is. The book starts somewhere very specific and moves very quickly, almost immediately into this unspecified kind of liminal in between space that feels outside of time. It feels outside of the concerns. You know, it's not like it's not realism in a certain way, right? It feels like it's the palace is just this kind of magical, strange place and, and wands, you know, exact age and the nature of what he's dying of. And, and, and it could, it feels like it could be the 1950s, right? Like, because they're in this kind of ghost town outside of time, but yeah. And and that was, that was very deliberate. I didn't want to like, I mean, it's a deathbed vigil for sure. Right. Like it is, it's, it's the story of somebody on their deathbed and dying. And like, it's a, it's a classic, it's a classic narrative, you know, like there are lots of books about this, about the death of Angel. And also, absolutely, it's um, like, it, it, it's referencing the AIDS crisis in that sense, right? And like how much, you know, how much, um, how many scenes I think we're familiar with, how many deathbed scenes we're familiar with in the art that was produced around, around AIDS, right? Um, and so in that way, like, like a wand's not dying of AIDS, but, but in, in the, in a way it's, um, it's like, it is, it's the giant, giant, like generation, the giant gap between the two of them, right. That they're both, you know, like, um, like, you know, looking at that moment, it's, 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 you know, it's all the space between them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking too of like this intentional muting of specific details, geographical details, the specifics of Juan's illness, exactly the specifics of time. You know, we started this conversation by talking about the ways in which people, often to your surprise, would project themselves like into or onto we the animals and their own experience. Mm-hmm. They would see their own selves and their own experiences in this text, even though their actual lived existence is quite different from the one you were describing. And then here again in blackouts, there are these intentional like dialing down 
instances that create this space for the reader where you can sort of project things onto the text and interpret it in your own way. Yeah. This is, yeah. I mean, is this, like, is this something that you're aware of as you're going in or is it something that like you just kind of do and then after the fact you realize like, oh, wow, people are really, like Brad was reading this as like an AIDS narrative, you know, but which isn't entirely false, you know, but also yeah. isn't entirely true. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I really, really, really wanted intentionally to make space for readerly interpretation. This entire book is about what you do with it as a reader. It's a puzzle. It's not, you know, like it, there's a lot of ambiguity. There's so much ambiguity <laughs> that ambiguity becomes the kind of central theme of the book, right? Like it's, it's this is what I was thinking about all along. I, you get a little vignette and then you get an image. It might be an erasure poem. It might be an illustration from a children's book drawing. It might be a photograph of a naked man. Like you get a little bit of text, an image, a little bit of text, a little, an image. Sometimes the relationship between text and image is so clear. Uh, a lot of the times it's not. And the and you as reader get to read it how you want to read it, right? Like you're, it's not even that you're, you're allowed to, it's like you have to. <laughs> this book becomes about reading and, and what you bring to it. Right, as as your from your own experience and your own background and how you're choosing to 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 read the relationships between these texts and images and and different kinds of texts as well, right? Like it just keeps jumping around in time. That's for me, like I w- I want it to be a different book for everybody, you know. <laughs> like I don't I don't want that's that's what that's what fiction can do. One of the things I was thinking about was, you know, like the competition with the screen, you know, like we're, like we're, we're losing (laughs) as fiction writers are are losing, but what is it that fiction can do that, that, you know, the screen can't do. And, and, you know, it's it's such an act, reading is so active. Right. And so I, I wanted the book to be beautiful. I want it to be a tactile object. I wanted, I wanted you to really enjoy holding it and moving through it and turning the pages and the feel of the pages. I mean, I fought over like what kind of paper would get used. Like I was really like, I, w- I was like, if we're going to keep writing novels, like what can novels do beyond just narrative, right? Cause you can get plot on the screen and just tune out and sit back and like, let the, let the murder trauma unfold before you right like like novels don't necessarily need to do that but what they can do is is open up a lot of space for like an active reader to actively engage with the text and make it what they want well i gotta say this is i've read a lot of books this year if not the definitely in the top three most beautiful book objects I'm like mm-hmm. thinking of like, I guess Dave Eggers had like a book, you know, McSweeney's always does this where it's like, oh, it had yeah. like a wooden cover with like, a, you know, that was a beautiful book object. <laughs> yeah. But this uh, book, you know, right here, uniquely beautiful, the mocha ink, yeah. like the, the text, yeah. the, the main text of the book is set in mocha. Yeah. If, that's, if that's the right way to characterize it. Yeah. That was yeah, your yeah. choice. It was, well, that was, so I really, really wanted sepia images. Like I really, I was like, first I wanted full color, but that was too expensive. And then I was like, 
it, well, it should be C because books, you know, the book is also a lot about nostalgia. Like there, it's a lot about the archives. Like I wanted there to be this kind of tinge and that was going to happen. And then it turned out that sepia was also too expensive because she used more than one color ink is just, you know, for various production reasons, it gets really expensive. And so the interior book designer and my editor, they, they just, they were like, well, what if we just printed it all in brown? And the images will look sepia because it's brown ink and the gradations of brown ink look so different than black and white, right? Oh. And and it'll have that kind of warmth that you want it to have. Um, but then the text will be all brown as well. And I was like, it's, that sounds brilliant. I love it. And then when I saw it, I, was, oh, I just love it so much because it feels like the book is kind of disappearing before your eyes, which is just so which is just so like exactly right for what the book is about. Um, That's cr- And I love that, yeah. that it's like, like creative improvisation that led you to this, you know, yeah. like working against financial constraints, <laughs> you know, but it definitely works and it is beautiful. And you talked about the paper, you chose the paper, like what paper was it? I'm curious. Yeah. I really thought, I, I'm not, fought is the wrong word. My, my editor is on my side all along the way, but you know, like I fought against the financial realities <laughs> to get, you know, it's like quote unquote poetry paper, you know, cause, because, you know, books, like a lot of poetry books are printed on much nicer paper because the print runs are so much smaller so that, so that it's financially feasible to, to do that. But a lot of novels that are going to have larger print runs, it's just, it doesn't make sense to, so they get, you know, that kind of pulpier paper that just doesn't feel as nice. And I really, I was like, please, can we have the poetry? Like, what can I do? Like, you know, like, I'll do anything. Like, if we could just have this poetry paper because I knew the images would look and, would look and feel differently depending on the type of paper that they're printed on. And there's so many images in the book. And yeah, it's, I mean... It's like small things that most people just are not going to notice, but I obsessed over every single, oh. every single. You should be. You, you should feel very good about the end product. This is a, a really uniquely beautiful book, and just you know, for people who haven't picked it up yet, there's obviously the text, which is in brown, and I like this note that you made about how it, it gives the effect of the text fading. I hadn't thought of that. But because mm-hmm. the text is brown, it does have like, you know, it's a bit of a fade from the traditional black text. And then yeah. as you're reading, there are interspersed throughout the text, lots of uh, erasure poems, like so pages from the sex variance book. Mm-hmm. And for people listening who don't know what an erasure poem is, it's like a blackout poem where mm-hmm. someone will go through with a black marker and intentionally delete or strike out certain words or phrases and what is left creates a new text or a poem or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there are those, there are uh, drawings from the children's books by Jan Gay. And and I think Genio did the illustrations, right? Genio did all the illustrations. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So she changed her name as well. Together they changed her name to Jan and Genio. Yeah, which is, just which is great. Bold. So yeah. it's a very visual book is the point. It has kind of a collage feel. There is also this kind of Socratic dialogue going on between between Nene and Juan Gay. There are like archival photographs and then photographs that feel like family photographs. You know, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And 
something that I want to bring up, and I'm working strictly from memory here because I could not find my copy of the book, but there is a, a mournful energy mm-hmm. inside this book, mm-hmm. like a sad, like a deep sadness mm-hmm. that has so much to do with all of this erasure and all of this suppression and oppression that is embedded within queer history, right? And within the mm-hmm. lives that you're depicting. So there was a real mm-hmm. sense of sadness. There's also a sense of mystery. There is mm-hmm. a great sense of mystery in this novel that keeps you turning the pages because you're trying to sort of sort out the puzzle that you have mm-hmm. laid down. And mm-hmm. the book that it kept coming to mind for me, and it could be just in error, but I'm curious if it, if it was in any way influential to you, is Austerlitz by W.G. Mm-hmm. Siebold. Because yeah, that yeah. book, I want to say, incorporates some visuals. Again, I'm working entirely from memory, but I just remember oh, yeah. reading, reading that book and, and it totally devastated me. It's about the kinder transport. Yeah. So yeah. it's not about uh, queer history or anything like that, but it is about uh, the kinder transport where all these Jewish kids were basically put on a train and taken to England to save mm-hmm. them from the Nazis. But mm-hmm. you're sort of... It's a, it's got the same mystery energy, and I want to say there are like archival images mm-hmm. interspersed throughout that novel. Am I is this was this in any way an influence upon you? <laughs> oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. No, I think Zewald is 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 brilliant, uh, and I think that the the use the way that he uses images in his work is you know it, it it's often they're just dropped in. You know, and it's just like it's like it's like a visual pause, and and it's exactly that where you're like, what is the relationship between what I'm reading and like this 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 sudden image? It's yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, yeah, Zewald is is definitely like if you're doing anything with images and, and narrative, like like he's 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 a touchstone, right? Like like you can't absolutely yeah. Um, oh, okay, good, huge, good, good, huge, huge influence. And then, like you know, like another another massive influence is is Kiss of the Spider Woman, which I talk about in the text, right? And that's that's the kind of dialogue nature and the and the retelling of movie plots, right? Like like that's coming from Kiss of the Spider Woman. There's so many like direct literary allusions in here and yes. influences, and there's so many uh, there's there's so many writers that I was reading from and you know, paying homage slash stealing liberally from. Oh, yeah, but it's all yours, um, you know, when you recombine it the way that you do. And it's another instance, you know, just with respect to these images, in particular, like the ones that feel like family photos or historical photos. I'm thinking of the ones I think that are taken in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Like these, the, they function as a kind of pause where suddenly, you know, mm-hmm. you're in the middle of the text and then suddenly there's just this striking image. And the mm-hmm. image doesn't necessarily have a perfect one-for-one correlation to anything that's been said in the text it's not simple to discern and so what it does is again it invites this projection and it invites this like active imaginative activity on the part of the reader where you get to sit there and look at this photo and you sort of make it up you know or you fill in that blank space that's a lot of fun that's a cool thing to do and like you say trying to uh, work out ways that literature can be made new and can do things that maybe the screen can't, you yeah. know, that level of active engagement is something that maybe more works of fiction should do. 
I think so. I think so. I think that, I think that like, you know, I wrote with the animals and everybody was, would, would tell me like, Oh, I read it in an hour and I read an hour and a half or I read it in a day. And I was like, I spent six years on that book. <laughs> like slow down. Right. Like can everybody slow down, please. Um, and I think that with, with this book, like there's so many invitations to put it down. I mean, it's, there's also like a bit of a page turn, like you said, like there's a mystery. And so you do want to keep turning the pages. But there's also like, it's just like, you can sit with it for a while, right? Like you don't have to rush through. It's not so plotty that you're just like, I need to find out what happens next. It's more like, huh, let me meditate a little bit and think about this and like experience, experience narrative at a slightly different pace. Um, than the kind of bombardment of narrative that we get through the screen where we're captive to it. And it's just like, we can't control the pace. It's just, you know, we're just staring at the screen and it's happening to us. This, I think with, with reading and fiction and I, yeah. And I, and I think we should all, all writers, we should all be thinking about this, right? It's like, what is it that we offer, you know, that, that, that can't be offered in any other form? Well, speaking of what, writers offer. I mean, this is also, like you say, there's lots of literary illusion embedded into this novel. And this book is standing on the shoulders of a lot of, in particular, queer literature that mm-hmm. uh, precedes it. And it's a loving homage to that work. And I think to the power of storytelling, like mm-hmm. look at just Jan Gay, you know, trying to mm-hmm. offer this corrective history where her story as a researcher and a crucial social scientist gets properly acknowledged Mm -hmm. but also just the work that she was doing as a children's author and the way that she was trying to live her life you acknowledge writers like Janae uh Tennessee Williams Manuel Puig the line in the book that really got me was when Juan says uh quote I think this is the direct line they carved a place where there was no place so it just under underscores how important, even though in the midst of the labor that goes into writing a book over six years or 12 years, <laughs> like whatever it is, and even if a book goes out into the world and only finds 600 readers or whatever it is, <laughs> it can still be vitally important and life-changing mm-hmm. for a few of the people that it finds. Like this work mm-hmm. is important. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It better be since we all spend so much time doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's, I think that that's exactly right. And, 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 and everything gets discovered and rediscovered and forgotten and found again. And it's, it's part of the process. And that's, it's a lot of what, you know, it's, it's a lot of what my book is about. It's, it's just reading. It's, it's a book about reading. It's about reading subtext about reading situations about reading people and it's also just about reading literature and yeah i mean it's all there everything is there right like like all of these places all these hidden places like somebody's somebody has carved a little place for you it's just you have to find it you know well but it's got to exist in order for it to be lost and found and i think with some of these earlier queer writers carving a place where there was no place to be on like the the leading edge yeah. of telling these kinds of stories is particularly important and heroic, but it has yeah. to continue, you know, these narratives and whatever community or whatever set of experiences 
you know, that a writer is speaking to, every generation sort of has to take up the mantle and to, to kind of retell these stories so that, yeah. you know, young queer kids growing up have a way to make sense of the world and uh, people who are not queer have a way of bridging the divide between themselves and other people, all this different stuff. It's, I think yeah. it's critical. Anybody who's a reader, I guess, would agree. I mean, most people, I'm just <laughs> preaching to the choir here, but <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you, Justin, is that it's moving to me. Like this is one of the most mm -hmm. moving aspects of this book is the loving way with which it treats storytelling. Mm. So thanks. Yeah. yeah. That, that's like, that's the highest compliment. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's what I was, I was thinking a lot about is, is the ways in which stories sustain us, you know, and, and sustain life and help us understand death as well. And, you know, like that's, there's a lot of life, a lot of death and dying in this book. And there are a lot of stories. <laughs> a so lot of stories. And I got to say, I, I am, my, I mean, Juan is my new model. I hope I am as cool under pressure as he is when I'm uh, on my uh, deathbed. You know, the guy is just, he's got it yeah. down. He's just uh, without a care. I mean, not without a care in the world, but he's definitely got his equilibrium. <laughs> uh, I know you got to go, but I want to ask you before we part company, if you are working on anything else, there was a significant amount of time between We the Animals and Blackouts I think there are people who just have that kind of incubation period creatively, mm -hmm. you know, like we talk, the most famous one is uh, Donna Tart. takes her mm -hmm. a decade about to write a book. It seems like, and mm -hmm. every one of them is good and everybody loves to read them and who cares, mm -hmm. but do you have another book in the works? And if so, or do you think it's going to take another 12 years to finish it? <laughs> I do. I do have one in the works. I just started it. Uh, I, I didn't with We the Animals. I didn't have another book to like write immediately that I was working on. Uh, and you know, I, I, everybody told me I should, and I didn't listen and they were right. So I do this time. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it's not going to take me as long. I, I don't think it will. I think, I think it, I mean, it's going to take me some time, <laughs> but I don't think it'll take me as long at all. But also I think that, you know, I'm all about slowing down. I'm all about everybody slowing down. <laughs> Cheers know? to that. Uh, so like, I'm, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna rush it. Um, and I think, yeah, I kind of wish everybody would take more time between books. Like there are a lot of books I want to read. You know, I want to read everything. And sometimes things come out and I I find that I wish that the person had taken just a little bit more time with it, even as much as I'm enjoying it. And so I, I hear um, that for sure. I don't sure. want to write a book like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, these things take time. I I do know that it's going to be a completely different book than Blackouts. I, any, any hints at all as to what it will, it will contain like, what kind of, like, what kind of world are we operating in? Do you, any kind of hints? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, I think I'm like embargoed from, from saying like, like I think, I think that, yeah, I, it's going to be really, really, really different. I think it's going to be, I I've said this, I've said this before, so I, I can say this. It's, it's going to be set in Southern California. It's going to be more specifically set in LA and, and kind of, you know, kind of the Inland Empire a little bit and like, just like 
it's my LA book. I feel like I'm finally in LA long enough to write about LA. I, I've been here for like eight years and you know, it's a really difficult place to get to know. Uh, I've been here 20, almost what, 22 years. Still, still trying to sort it out. Yeah. We should mention like most people who live here, neither of us are natives. You're from the East coast and I'm from the Midwest and making our lives here. And it's like, that's, I mean, that's the whole, the old saw about Los Angeles is how unknowable it is and how easy it is to disappear here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Both of those things are so true. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this isn't going to be like the LA book, but it is, but it is set in, it is set in LA and the kind of, and kind of um, Southern California more broadly. And um, it's a challenge that that's, that's a challenge. Um, I'm, I mean, the drastic, drastic, um, dramatic, troubling divide between the haves and have-nots in the city and the ways in which the city kind of facilitates, you know, it's a, it's a drive-by city, right? Like, like you can, you know, like there, there are, it's just tent cities, you know, and like you can just zoom by them. It's, a, you know, like there's, there's a sense in which, you know, so, so, so some of some of the kind of real fault lines of of LA fascinate me, but also like you know, it, it's there's a lot of wonderful magical things happening in the city as well, and 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 they absolutely captivate my imagination as well. It's there's so many neighborhoods, and, and you know, like they're so vibrant in their own ways and whatever and it's I so big it's so big it's so big yeah i think about that stuff yeah i'm right there with you it's a beautiful place and sort of a infinite like, yeah. like who 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 in this city has seen every neighborhood in la it's like you yeah. couldn't possibly like it's just <laughs> i'm still discovering every once in a while i'll be driving through like some area and i'm like oh i had no idea this was even here you know and mm-hmm. been here a long time so I will look forward to this next mysterious book. By the way, you got away with giving us only the hint that it is set in LA. So kudos to you for <laughs> drawing that out. I was like, what's you know, what's it about? We know that it is set in LA, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we are breaking news here on the other people podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was like, I was told not to say too much about it. Um, so I, I get it. Here. Especially mm-hmm. early, you never know because things can change. You know, you got to kind of give yourself uh, some wiggle room. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I barely but, have anything written down, so I only have the idea, and that that will shift, shift, and shift, and shift. Yeah. Okay. Well, enjoy this one. Well, you know, before you get to that next one, congratulations on Blackouts, the uh, nomination for the National Book Award. And uh, do you know what you're going to wear to the ceremony? Do you have an outfit picked out? <laughs> it's funny you should ask. I like literally today, two things that I ordered online arrived. One of them was not what I ordered, and the other was not my size. And I've never, I never shop online ever, but I'm just like desperate because I have nothing to wear to this ceremony. But I don't know. I don't, I really want to wear like a cream. I saw a cream corduroy tuxedo with like a white set and lapel that I love, but cannot afford at all and would never pay the amount of money that it that costs. Like I would, it's, it's not something I would do, but I'm trying to like manufacture that on the cheap by like searching things online and so far failing miserably. Who makes this tuxedo, this cream corduroy? Nello 
Cuccinelli, Cuccinelli or something like that. If uh, anyone listening knows <laughs> anyone at Brunello Cuccinelli, I feel like they should be giving you this tuxedo. You're going to be on the red carpet. I mean, come on. You should be yeah. just getting this as a freebie. They should. It's really beautiful. It's a corduroy. With, it's just like nothing. I, I mean, it's like things I've seen, but it's just, it's done in a way that I just, I love it. But it's so much fun. It's like. How much is it? Like what? $10,000? Yeah. Like $8,000. $8,000. Oh. Like, I mean, yeah. you, know, you could buy, you could, you know, like you could, <laughs> you could buy like a, you could buy a nice used car almost. Right. Like you could, exactly. there's, you you could, could go on a, a very, you could go away mm-hmm. for the summer. Like the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. No, it's not something I would ever fathom spending money on, but it's like, you know, I saw it. I saw it. I was like, I went to, I went to like, Neiman Marcus and I was like I'd never been there and I was like what is I just touched everything and looked at everything and I was like I'm gonna get inspired and then like figure out how to do it on the cheap you know but I honestly feel like the people at the National Book Awards should broker some relationships <laughs> with designers I'm not even kidding like you know you got these nominees put them in some designer outfits yeah like, make it happen. like the Oscars yeah yeah I mean, you know, how hard is it for them to give a tuxedo <laughs> to a National Book Award nominee? I feel like this is something we can make happen. So you've given me a new mission. But uh, I appreciate the time. I know you're a busy man and you've got a lot going on with this book. And uh, I just uh, congratulate you on the success that you're having. And I wish you well on this mysterious next project. Thanks so much. It was really great talking with you. All right, folks, there we have it. That was Justin Torres. Great conversation. His new novel is called Blackouts, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find Justin on the internet. His website is justin-torres.com. He is also on Instagram. One more time, the new novel, a National Book Award finalist, is called Blackouts. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Go sign up for my weekly email newsletter over at Substack. And be sure to join the Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen, rate it, review it. It helps the show in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you would like to get another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And if you want to get my latest book, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So I'll read it to you if you want. It is a novel. It's my book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right. So coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with Thurston Moore, founder of the band Sonic Youth and author of a new memoir entitled Sonic Life. Fascinating to meet Thurston Moore and talk with him about his life and his music. Sonic Life is available from Doubleday. Stay tuned for my conversation with 
Thurston Moore coming up in just a couple of days. 